Part 3, Section 10 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy, Section 48. Passion never plays the game. It, at all events, is free from self-consciousness and pride. From dignity, nerves, scruples, cant, moralities, from hypocrisies and wisdom and fears for pocket and position in this world and the next. Well did the old painter's limb it as an arrow or a wind. If it had not been as swift and darting, earth must long ago have drifted through space unattainted to let. After that fevered night, Lennon went to his studio at the usual hour and naturally did not do a stroke of work. He was even obligated to send away his model. The fellow had been his hairdresser, but getting ill and falling on dark days, when morning had come to the studio, to ask with manifest shame if his head were any good. After having tested his capacity for standing still, and giving him some introductions, Lennon had noted him down. Five feet nine, good hair, lean face, something tortured and pathetic. Give him a turn if possible. The turn had come, and the poor man was posing in a painful attitude, talking whenever permitted of the way things had treated him and the delights of cutting hair this morning he took his departure with the simple pleasure of one fully paid for services not rendered and so walking up and down up and down the sculptor waited for nell's knock what would happen now thinking had made nothing clear here was offered what every warm-blooded man whose spring is past desires youth and beauty and in that youth a renewal of his own. What all men, save hypocrites and Englishmen, would even admit that they desired. And it was so offered to one who had neither religious nor moral scruples, as they are commonly understood. In theory he could accept. In practice he did not as yet know what he could do. One thing only he had discovered during the night's reflections, that those who scouted belief in the principle of liberty made no greater mistake than to suppose that liberty was dangerous because it made a man a libertine. To those with any decency, the creed of freedom was of all the most enchanting. Easy enough to break chains imposed by others, fling his cap over the windmill, and cry for the moment at least, I'm unfettered, free. Hard indeed to say the same to his own unfettered self. Yes, his own self was in the judgment seat, by his own verdict and decision he must abide, and though he ached for the sight of her, and his will seemed paralyzed, many times already he had thought, it won't do, God help me. Then twelve o'clock had come, and she had not. Would the girl on the magpie horse be all he would see of her today, that unsatisfying work, so cold and devoid of witchery? Better have tried to paint her, with a red flower in her hair, a pout in her lips, and her eyes fey or languorous. Goya could have painted her. And then, just as he had given her up, she came. After taking one look at his face, she slipped in ever so quietly, like a very good child. Marvelous the instinct and finesse of the young when they are women. Not a vestige in her of yesterday's seductive power, not a sign that there had been a yesterday at all, just confiding, like a daughter sitting there telling him about Ireland, showing him the little batch of drawings she had done while she was away. Had she brought them because she knew they would make him feel sorry for her? 
what could have been less dangerous, more appealing to the protective and paternal side of him, than she was that morning, as if she only wanted what her father and her home could not give her, only wanted to be a sort of daughter to him. She went away demurely as she had come, refusing to stay to lunch, manifestly avoiding Sylvia. Only then he realized that she must have taken alarm from the look of strain on his face, been afraid that he would send her away, only then perceived that, with her appeal to his protection, she had been binding him closer, making it harder for him to break away and hurt her. And the fevered aching began again, worse than ever, the moment he lost sight of her. And more than ever he felt in the grip of something beyond his power to fight against. Something that, however he swerved and backed and broke away, would close in on him, find means to bind him again, hand and foot. In the afternoon, Dromore's confidential man brought him a note. The fellow, with his cast-down eyes and his well-parted hair, seemed to lend in to be saying, Yes, sir, it is quite natural that you should take the note out of eyeshot, sir, but I know. Fortunately, there is no necessity for alarm. I am strictly confidential. And this was what the note contained. You promised to ride with me once. You did promise, and you never have. Do please ride with me tomorrow. Then you will get what you want for the statuette instead of being so cross with it. You can have Dad's horse. He has gone to Newmarket again. And I am so lonely. Please, tomorrow, at half past two, starting from here, Nell. To hesitate in view of those confidential eyes was not possible. It must be yes or no. And if no, it would only mean that she would come in the morning instead. So he said, just say all right. Very good, sir. Then from the door, Mr. Dromore will be away till Saturday, sir. Now why had the fellow said that? Curious how this desperate secret feeling of his own made him see sinister meeting in this servant, in Oliver's visit of last night, and everything. It was vile, the suspiciousness. He could feel, almost see himself deteriorating already, with this furtive feeling in his soul. It would soon be written on his face. But what was the use of troubling? What would come, would, one way or the other. And suddenly he remembered with a shock that it was the 1st of November, Sylvia's birthday. He had never before forgotten it. In the disturbance of that discovery, he was very near to going and pouring out to her the whole story of his feelings, a charming birthday present that would make. Taking his hat instead, he dashed round to the nearest flower shop. A Frenchwoman kept it. What had she? What did Monsieur desire? No, not those. White flowers. Yes, that would do. To be sent at once. At once. Next door was a jeweler's. He had never really known if Sylvia cared for jewels, since one day he happened to remark that they were vulgar, and, feeling that he had fallen low indeed, to be trying to atone with some miserable gewgaw for never having thought of her all day because he had been thinking of another he went in and bought the only ornament whose ingredients did not make his gorge rise two small pear-shaped black pearls one at each end of a fine platinum chain coming out with it he noticed over the street in a clear sky fast deepening to indigo the thinnest slip of a new moon like a bright swallow with wings bent back, flying towards the ground. That meant fine weather. If it could only be fine weather in his heart, then in order that the azalea might arrive first, he walked up and down the square which he and Oliver had patrolled the night before.
When he went in, Sylvia was just placing the white azalea in the window of the drawing room, and stealing up behind her, he clasped the little necklet around her throat. She turned round and clung to him. He could feel that she was greatly moved, and remorse stirred and stirred in him, that he was betraying her with that kiss. But even while he kissed her, he was hardening his heart. End of section 48